You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's an honor to be here with a man whose voice you've all heard, a man who is exactly the voice of books for NPR. He is a man who's sat on many panels and judged many books and is well-versed in telling us, finding the best books and telling us about them in the most exciting and interesting ways. He's also a fabulously talented author on his own behalf. Uh, I'd like to say welcome to Alan Choose. Alan, let's uh, get you reading here. Thank you, Rick. Gather around the campfire. We're going to tell you some warningness stories. This is the what fairy tales originally were, ways to keep the children in the house at night. So come on close, and we'll tell you what exactly to stay away from. This is great. Thank you for moving. <laughs> great. Okay, the nets are in place. Very good. I think uh, I know a lot of readers in America and uh, public readers or readers who talk about books uh, on radio or television or in print. Uh, and Rick is one of the few people who reads more than I do. And, and he's a cultural institution. And one day we'll see him stuffed and the Santa Cruz Historical Society Museum, but not, not soon. I, I plan on doing that in my own house. My, my, my children will live with the stuffed version of me filled with cassettes of me saying my favorite things. Okay. So we're going to do a radio show for you tonight, so yeah. if you want to introduce. Welcome to the Agony Column. Uh, what I do is find books that are worth your valuable reading time, as does Alan Chu's, and his latest book is a collection of stories, An Authentic Captain Marvel Ring. Alan, did you have one? I did. I, I did. Yeah. I, had, I had several rings, and, I, and the ring that I write about in this very uh, brief in, introduction to the book is, a, is an amalgam of um, a couple of the rings that I owned. Um, I mean, I say that because when I went back on the web to try to find the origin of this ring that I imagined. I couldn't. <laughs> and it turned out that it was part of one ring and part of another ring. And, um, but then that's what fiction does. Right? It makes up a reality out of bits and pieces of, of life and the past and, and the future such, such as we know it. Well, that's what we all do. I just uh, talked to somebody who had a, a vivid memory of being with their uncle on a certain day and seeing a certain football game, but then they later realized that their uncle had somebody told, and they had told the story many, many times. I was with my uncle and I saw this great football game and we had this great moment together. And then somebody told them, well, you know, actually that uncle had died five years before that game. So, uh, we, we're all fiction, <laughs> fiction years in that sense. Uh, would you read to us uh, Nailed? Sure. Uh, as I, when I was thinking about what I would read, um, there are a number of West Coast stories here, and I thought, well, since I live in Washington, most of the year I'll read an East Coast story for you. Uh, 
and, uh, and and especially since I had a pedicure today, um, <laughs> it's a, it's about a uh, man who um, goes to his wife's uh, pedicure parlor with her. It's called Nailed. After a restless night, one of many in a restless year, when he awoke several times feeling that he was on the verge of something, a cold or an allergy attack or who knew what, a perplexed Bill Wicker called in sick and after a lazy morning looking at the newspaper and the weather channel and drinking one cup of French roast after another, he allowed Marcy, his wife of two years, to talk him into driving her down to the nail salon. If you're really sick, I wouldn't have asked you, Marcy said when they were already in the car. She then made what turned out to be a quite fateful remark. You should come in with me. That big toenail of yours, you turned over in bed last night and you scratched me. I don't remember that, Wicker said, keeping his eye on the road. He felt a little bit of whirling in his head and he recalled that his therapist, when he went to her, referred to this state as a complex. Perplexed, complex. It was just difficult when you never counted on feeling things this way, ever. Trust me, you did it, she said. Well, that's what happens when you live together. Where? Where what? Where did I scratch you? I said in the bed. No, where on your body? On my leg. Show me. Though he felt listless, listless after his night of waking and turning, he managed to leer at her, his old college boy way of feigning desire. Marcy gracefully pulled up her skirt enough to show him her tan calf and twisted around in her seat to reveal a long, fresh white tear in the fleshiest part of it. Sorry, he said. I don't remember doing that. It was in the middle of the night. Just keep driving. It's almost noon. He conducted their small, fuel-efficient car down Macomb Street, and this is, my, this is my neighborhood in D.C., and into the traffic on Connecticut Avenue. It always amazed him, a man usually in his office at this hour, that trucks and buses, ambulances and automobiles and fire trucks made such a mess of things just before noon. Though what the hell, he didn't know anything these days. The big boss, Jewish and knowledgeable, came down on his ass, his immediate manager, a black guy with a Harvard MBA, nagging him the way his mother used to nag her father, not with any straightforward challenge, but just sniping here and there. No wonder Wicker felt this thought rising as a hot sensation in his chest. No wonder I lied and took the day off just now in the middle of the big deal and all that. Malingering at home, he'd forgotten about it for a while, as he did with a lot of things. And now all of a sudden he remembered, thus producing more heat. Here you are, he said, as he pulled into his space just around the corner from the address she'd given him, which happened to be just around the corner from their neighborhood liquor store, a route he knew quite well. Marcy got out of the car, but leaned back in the open passenger window, showing cleavage. Bill, what? He pulled his iPhone out of his pocket, ready to spend time and space with music on the drive home, while she had them do whomever they were, whatever they did for her toes. Toes, it reminded him of one of those mysteries in the world of women from which he was, as he saw it then, forever barred and gladly. Come in with me. What? He kept his eyes on her chest. Come on, come on. Come in and get that nasty toenail fix, she said, showing him even more of what he always took a good look at at night. Nails are for girls, he said. He turned his head aside, not wanting to prove to her that all he really cared about these days was her body, though both of them had sort of gotten the idea that this was, in spite of every tenderness he had showed her in the early days of their marriage, just about the truth. Men are girls too sometimes, Marcy said. Now she was playing to one of his perverse little habits. If I were a girl, Wicker said, I'd never get out of the fucking house. I'd take my clothes off and stand in front of the mirror all day long. <laughs> Marcy nodded at his familiar joke. You and your tits, she said. Balls, said the queen. If I had him, I'd be king. Marcy kept a straight face. You sure you won't come in with me? 
I don't have an appointment, he said, feeling rather definitive. He was ready to return home, drink a beer, and do he didn't know what else, except it wouldn't have anything to do with work. Yes, you do. No, I don't. You do. I made an appointment for both of us. How tricked you, she said. You did, he said. So come on, she said. Are there going to be any other men up there? She gave him a big smile. Now, how did, how did I know you were going to ask that question? Sometimes there are. Men do this, too. It's healthy for your feet, whatever you have between your legs. His remark, her remark sparked him around. I'm your slave, he said. I wish. Yeah, he said, motioning her away from the window while he pushed the button to raise it. You wish what, he said when he got out of the car. Do you have any quarters? I do, she said, reaching into her purse and fishing out some coins. But I wish you'd listen to me more often. That's not being a slave. That's just what you and your friends think is being a slave. But look at this, Wicker said as they walked to the entrance of the building. Toe tally nails by Nan. Luxury for less. At what? I'm doing what you tell me. I'm coming along with you. I'm your slave. It's called being a good companion, she said. I could have made it easier for myself, you know. I could have come alone. Puh, puh, he said, alluding with his mouth noise to one of the things that sometimes passed between them in the night. It seemed to make her wince and then laugh. Men are beasts, he said, as she led him up the stairs. Why do you say that? She turned around and gave him a guarded look, realizing he could sometimes read her thoughts, at least simple thoughts like this, that he was staring at her buttocks as she moved. Oh, I get it. Well, behave yourself when we get up there. What could I do wrong in a nail salon, he said. Really? She took another breath but cut herself off, but not soon enough. Sorry, she said. I was just kidding you. I was not guilty, he said, and you weren't kidding as much as you think. You brought it up. Not exactly. It's just that it always seems to be on your mind. Marcy paused at one of the upper steps. I wonder why. Wicker stopped just below her. So now what am I supposed to do? More penance? No, she said. He could see the veil fall between her face and his. No, she went on. We're going to have our pedicures and have a good time. Christ, that's what I want as much as you, having a good time. That's why I took the day. You took the day off because, because, oh, Miss Marcy. He was interrupted by a raven-haired Asian woman, surprisingly bosomy compared to his stereotypical notion, poking her head out of the doorway of the nail parlor. Hi, Nan, Marcy said. Look who I brought. The woman smiled appreciatively at Wicker. Just as you say, a handsome fellow. Come in, come in. She ducked back inside. Wicker found himself blushing. You talk to her about me? Bill, women talk. I've learned that the hard way, Wicker said. Marcy put a finger to her lips. Not another word, she said. It was your friend who blabbed, he said. My ex-friend. And she might not have blabbed if you hadn't fucked her. Her use of that word hit him like a hammer to the chest. I was drunk. Men do that. I've told you every time you bring this up. He turned and spoke as if to the wall, only a few inches from his face. Christ, when is this going to end? You make me breakfast, we fight about it. I buy you flowers, we fight about it. We take a trip, we fight about it. He took a deep breath. Look, if I come in here with you, can that be the end? He turned around and Marcy gently touched a finger to his lips as the woman returned to the doorway. Her head bowed as though she were ashamed of listening. Please, Miss Marcy, Mr. Bill, he said, Bill Wicker. The woman inclined her head toward him and went inside. Marcy followed her, and Wicker followed Marcy into a large room glowing with light from the large windows overlooking the street. Wicker nearly went temporarily blind, and then he blinked his vision into submission. Green-tinted water swirled in basins set in front of a large, adjustable imitation leather chairs. Before he knew it, he had his shoes and socks off. Standing there in that bright light, he stared at his ill-shaped toes with their odd angled nails, beneath some of which a whitish-yellow fungus grew as if in a home garden. 
ugly feet, but they were his feet, and he decided to give in to Marcy's plan and allow these women to care for him. Within moments, he was sitting back in one of those large chairs, his toes buffeted about in a basin of warm, churning, greenish water. Marcy sat next to him, but that had the decency to ignore him, chattering instead with the woman in charge of her feet. Ah, was all Wicker said for a good 20 minutes while that bosomy woman bid him raise his feet and lower, raise his feet and lower, so that she could clip, aye, now and then a little nip from her clipper, pierce the solitude of his condition, clip his toenails, and lave his soles and heels and shins and calves with various oils and lotions, hot and cold. She and the other women who worked here spoke to each other in a tonal tongue, voices rising and falling in song-like fashion. Now and then he glanced at the woman bent before him, but she gave nothing back to his eye, continuing to work on his feet, treating him like a patient or a king with warped toes and fungus-laden nails. How many hundreds, if not thousands of years had this kind of manicuring endured in Asia? His father had served there in that war, of all the mysteries in his life, this one leaped foremost to mind. What kind of grooming had the women he met there given him? This tenacious clipping, this rough filing. Now that the woman finished with her clipping, things down there felt wonderful, soothing, exhilarating. Ah, look at the way she splashed about with the water and the oils. Stain herself in his service? She didn't care. She was devoted. She was his, or at least his foot's the way she worked his calf muzzles, the smoothness of her fingers on his soul. Again, ah, this is the kind of care women gave you if you paid for it. He might even have blanked out during the paradise of it all, because when he looked over at Marcy, she had a restful smile on her face as she looked back at him. Like it? Oh, he said, I could stay here. I could live here. Just bring me food and so forth. And so forth, Christ, you know, fill in the blanks. Marcy's chest rose as she took in a breath to speak. Shh, he said, reaching over to touch her hand. Don't ruin this. And you're not? He might have said something just then, but someone tapped on his foot, and he glanced down at his toe woman, motioning for him to raise his leg so that she could work on his other calf. This went on for a while, and then back to the other foot, and he honestly wished he had more feet and legs for her to work on. <laughs> All this was so restful and stimulating at the same time. Ah, again, again, the ahs. If life were only like this. He closed his eyes and imagined himself one of those kings, or a prince at least, of Thailand, with all of these luxuries and services at his beck and call. He would be a kind and good ruler. He would be benevolent. He would try not to harm anyone in his entourage, especially any of the women. Ah, a chance to start over, to become a better man. He opened his eyes. The light coming through the window seemed to have softened ever so slightly as the noon hour had worn on. Ah. And then, as in all good and wonderful sensual matters, eating, massage, hoops, kissing, boozing, swimming, fucking, it was over. He sat there in the bliss of it all, slumped back in his chair, staring wistfully at his feet. Physically, his toes had changed, trim now, where the before they were ragged and jagged, odd and almost alien to him. So had he changed? Take a look. You like, the woman said. He nodded. Yes, yes, he said, finding himself speaking pigeon. I like, I like. She bowed her head toward him, and he imagined how his father must have felt when he was his age, still young enough to have been defeated and yet old enough to anticipate the end of such physical pleasures. 
It was a pathetic thing, perhaps even verging on the tragic, that he had not paid much attention to his father's war stories when he'd had a chance to ask questions about them. It was something he figured like what he might have felt if he'd grown up listening to this tonal speech, near singing it was to him, and had not chosen to learn it. As he pulled on his socks and tied his sneakers, he felt a completely unwarranted surge of pride. From now on, I will be different, he told himself. I may stumble, but I will pick myself up and surge forward, maybe even on my fucking toes. Gallant figure that he was, he paid for both of their pedicures while the women called out in their bird language to new customers entering the salon. So that's it, he said, as he and Marcy walked down the stairs to the street. I think you liked it, didn't you? I did, he said. And now I know a little more about your secret life. It's not all that secret, Marcy said. You can know as much about my life as you like. I'd like you to know about it. I want you to know about it. Well, he said, quiet until they reached the ground level. A man can only know so much. Is that right? There was something in her voice he couldn't identify, except he knew he didn't like it. He might have said more, but just then a tall, young, almond-skinned woman in a short skirt and sandals came in through the street door. She might have been the daughter of the woman who had cared for Wicker's feet. She could have been another customer. He stared at her beautiful calves and ankles and toes as he made way for her to climb past them. Damn, he said as he and Marcy stepped out onto the sidewalk. What? Marcy stopped and folded her arms across her chest, quite a sight herself, a storm in the making. My toes feel so good. He gave her a big, big smile, which turned out to be exactly the wrong thing. Who knew why to do? Ah, oh, fuck you, Wicker, she said. You know I saw you looking at her, and I saw you looking at Nan when we first came in. You like your toes? Fuck your toes. Fuck every one of your ten fucking toes. Fuck them. I hope they turn black and drop off. I hope you never walk again. Wow, Wicker said. What did I do to piss you off? I did everything you wanted. You don't know what I want, she said quietly, as though they were standing in the middle of a crowd of strangers, except that no one else was anywhere near them. Do you know, he said. He clenched his fists, really suddenly angry. She turned and began walking away from the shop. A car came around the corner, but she kept on going. Hey, you'll get killed, he called after her. Not unless you kill me, she called back. Bye-bye, Miss Marcy. Mr. Bill, hope you like toes. Nan, the nail woman, called to them from the upper windows of the building. Marcy paid no attention. Wicker looked up. What did I do to deserve this, he said, but the Asian woman couldn't hear him. So he walked away, delicately as it happened, because he suddenly felt a pain in his toes, in the big toe of his right foot, to be specific. Had the woman cut him with her clipper? He stopped a moment, hoping to ease the pain. Marcy walked on. She didn't even look back. Was this how things would end? Ridiculous, with him standing there alone, his toe aching, possibly bleeding, people moving along the avenue oblivious to his pain. And then the face of his father came up between him and the people on the street, the cars, the traffic light. Is this what this is all about? His toes, his life, lying to Marcy, his father, unspeakable Vietnam. Now he found it difficult to breathe and he nearly forgot about his toes. His father opened his mouth as if to tell him something. How long since he had heard that voice? Could it speak from beyond the grave? Well, what the hell did he think was happening now anyway? Did his father congratulate him on having become so well-groomed? Did his father say how proud he was of the man he had become? You tell us, Bill. Take a deep breath and tell us what happens next. What in this whole wide world happens next? Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for Alan Chase. <laughs>
plight of the indigenous metrosexual, I guess you'd say, by force. That was a hysterical story, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, well, and disturbing as well. Yeah. I, I'd like you to talk a little Just when in, you, you thought that men were bad, but not that bad, I, I read this story <laughs> to you. So, uh, did you enjoy your pedicure, manicure, pedicure this morning? I did, yeah, because I had to, up for the last month and a half, I had to look at my toes, <laughs> as if they were some alien growth on me. So I turned myself over. And it's, it's always strange. I mean, I'm sure every woman in the audience has had a pedicure. No, you haven't. Well, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, so this, I mean, I, th I think of this as, I don't know what you think of it as, I think of it as an Eastern story as opposed to some of the Western stories in here. I mean, there's a... Uh, Seems pretty Santa Cruz to me. I mean... Yeah, you think? Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, this is what I love about this story is that it's absolutely not... When we think Alan Chu's short story, we don't think about a guy going to get <laughs> a, a pedicure and just... Um, the level of his everyday guy thoughts. I mean, you know, you're, you're in there with uh, Nick Hornsby, re, re, you know, traitorously revealing to women how men actually think, and, and maybe should, something should be done about that. Yeah, I mean, I know it's taken all the grace the women in the audience possess not to have moved away from any men that's sitting in here. <laughs> it's uh, one of the great truths of life, right? Almost as true as biology, which is, you know, women are better than men. But then, you know, as my dear late friend Jim Houston has said over and over again, uh, you know, hey, men are women too, which is, the, I think, the better part of us. Now, when you uh, write a story like that, do you just get, like, into a groove? Is it like a method acting kind of thing? That's interesting. No one's ever asked me that before. Uh, method acting, yeah, I mean, that, that's true. I mean, uh, I mean, you put a sentence down, and then you follow it with another sentence, and then you follow that with another sentence. It's kind of like uh, laying a brick pathway, or, you know, depending on your style, an ornate stone pathway, or uh, kentile, as my father used to do in, when I was a child. You know, he'd, he'd put down a new kentile floor in the basement one slab after another. Um, so you, it's weird, it's, it's kind of like the opposite of fishing. I mean, you, you don't cast the line out and see what you pull in, but you cast the line out inch by inch and follow it, and that can take you to a fish or not. I it's mean, kind of I, like the cask of Amontillado, you seal yourself in. <laughs> or you seal yourself out. <laughs> um, I mean, I really don't know. I mean, I mean, it is a mystery. If it weren't a mystery, probably, you know, we wouldn't have the chance to do anything good. Um, I mean, all of us who write are probably, well, now I'm making a general statement, but I mean, I've done hack writing. I mean, one of the first books I ever wrote was a, a Bobsy Twins novel uh, where I was living in New York. I was in my early 20s. And... Um, my first wife, as she was wont to say, said, you call yourself a writer. Here's an advertisement. It says, writers wanted. And uh, it was for writing uh, Hardy Boys and Bobsy Twins novels. And the way they, they, they tested you first to see if you could speak English. 
And then they gave you an explicit outline. And you just followed that, uh, kind of like the storyboard of a, a movie or one of these so-called Bibles that the soap operas have. Uh, and you wrote out every scene as instructed in the, in the, the Hardy Boys or Bobsy Twins chart. Um, was it under your name? Oh, no, no. They're, they're, Which I, one I, was it? Can we get it? I that seems like that's a, there's a piece of book. I collecting. can't remember. I mean, believe me, I can't remember the number it was. It was a number 12 or number 748. I don't remember. Um, so, I'm, I mean, I, when I used to ghostwrite art books for the Abrams uh, publishers, uh, I mean, we do the, usually it was very drunk art critics who couldn't finish the books because they'd pass out. And, for months at a time. So they, <laughs> Abrams hired me. I, so I wrote a book on Utrillo, following notes, explicit notes. I wrote a book on uh, um, Robert Indiana. I think there are a couple others. I can't remember who they were now. But, and again, you, I just followed the instructions. Uh, so I, know, I knew that I could write, but I didn't know that I could write anything worth reading. <laughs> Um, and, and so, actually, I didn't start writing seriously until I was in my late 30s. So I, I vowed I would uh, publish a short story before my 40th birthday, and I, I made it by one month. Um, and um, What story was it? It's called, a story, it, it was in The New Yorker, and it was called Fishing for Coyotes, and it was in my f first collection. Um, I mean, the odd practice of, um, this is before uh, South Padre Island became quite uh, gentrified, which it is now, filled with condos and stuff. Um, but f people with fishing rods would go out into the dunes with uh, little pieces of bacon attached to the hooks and cast the lines out into the dunes, and they literally fish for coyotes because there was a bounty on coyotes. So you could make money that one. Anyway, it's a, it was a Christmas story. <laughs> Believe it or not, I swear it was a Christmas story. My f first wife and I went, we were living in Mexico and we took the bus up with our son who was then seven, eight months old. And, um, we went to uh, Corpus Christi where uh, her grandmother lived and we, so we spent Christmas with her grandmother. Um, and that's how I discovered when we went on a little car trip to Padre Island and there I said what is that fellow doing he's he has his back to the to the bay and he's casting into the sand dunes and that's what I learned about fishing for coyotes uh, there's a national lampoon kind of satire about that dog fishing in America driving down the street with a, a pickup truck with a trolling for dogs yeah actually no, but now they mentioned it we could we could put it on the flag of fishermen trying to catch a coyote that <laughs> We could start a campaign. I have a campaign where I'd like to replace our current national anthem with a Bob Dylan song, but uh, which uh, one? Blind Willie McTell. I don't know if you know that, but uh, well, I, I used to be able to say the whole thing. I, uh, I I can't say it now, but I mean, if you go go on the web and to the Bob Dylan web page, which happens to be curated by my son, uh, he works for Sony Music, and uh, and. Uh, cut into the link of Blind Willie McTell and see if you don't think it'll make a better national anthem than 
America the Beautiful. God Save the Queen, as it were. Uh, one of the things I noticed when I read this book, your latest book, is you have a love of <coughs> writing about visual artists. And, I mean, you, you're, you had a wonderful novel, To Catch the Lightning, about Edward Curtis. And this seems like setting yourself up for like a really impossible challenge to you know try to capture in prose mm -hmm. uh, the life of somebody who lives primarily visually through visual images mm -hmm. and, and photography in particular. Um, there's a story in this book, Moonrise Hernandez, New Mexico, yeah, uh, about, about the Ansel Adams photographs. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, it just seems like kind of crazy to set that kind of challenge for yourself. What makes you do that? I well, I love that photograph. It's, it's right over my bed. I woke up one morning and thought, I'm going to write a story about that fucking photograph. <laughs> Challenge myself. But uh, yes, you, you, you write and you, you, de you describe an image. And it's a little bit like uh, taking off in an airplane. I mean, you know, you go one foot after another, after another, after another. Or maybe like a bird flying and suddenly it's up in the air. So at a certain point, if, you know, if, if the, what you're writing is any good, the reader forgets that it's made of language and just visualizes the image. Well, I think that the, one of the things you did well in that story was the way you sculpted the language kind of echoed the uh, sparseness and the feel. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain feel for me for any Ansel and Adams image I look at because they all have this kind of poignant beauty. There's really... Mm -hmm desperately sad something about all of them, but they're all extremely beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I think you, your language captures that, and you also capture that emotionally, uh, talking about um, what's going on in his life, the, mm -hmm. the threads of uh, his divorce and his, his child, and, and it's nice to hear about Georgia O'Keeffe in, in the same swatch of uh, words. Well, I'm glad you like that. I'm glad you like that story. Yeah, these are, I, I guess you'd call that an an origin story. I've got a, a couple of those in here. Uh, origin story, what do you mean by that? I, that's a, I mean, generally that means uh, this, when, how Spider-Man came to be spider -Man. Well, this is how that photograph came to be. Okay. All right. And there, there's an, I, I wrote another one. Uh, I grew up in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, and I was reading Ben Franklin's autobiography, and there's, there's a, a line or two about how, when he was le he left Boston, was going to take this job with a printer in uh, Philadelphia. And he, he came to New York, and then he took a, sh a boat, uh, this little sloop, was going to carry him from Manhattan to Philadelphia Harbor. Except that they were blown off course and they, they onto the Long Island shore, and then they started out again the next day after the storm, and the storm came up again, and they had to spend a night on the beach in my hometown. So I wrote a story called Ben and Amboy. Um, I, mean, I, I mean, I grew up on that beach, and it's the only thing in Perth Amboy worth thinking about. I mean, it's, a, it's a, an oil dump. I mean, all the oil from refineries come and are stored in these huge, uh, these vast containers, and that's my hometown. And all the institutions, beginning with the, the public schools and religious institutions, everything was about that level, sort of uh, crude and and uh, roughly gathered together. Anyway, so the beach the beach was the one place that I haunted. I mean, if it weren't for for water, 
Uh, it, might have, it might as well have been South Wichita. But, um, and then New York, of course. But before I knew about New York, I knew about the water and, and all the richness that the water brought. And that's where the, uh, the, the first inhabitants, the, the Lenny Lenape, or, and, and their sub-tribal group, the Ampoj, lived at, at the waterside and uh, lived on clams and oysters native to the, to the bay until we killed them all. They killed all the Indians and killed all the clams and oysters. Um, so I love that. I saw one line in, in Franklin's autobiography. says, spent the night on the beach in Perth Amboy. And so I wrote a story about that. So that's what I would call an origin story. What happened on the beach that night? Very, very interesting stuff. Um, the kind of stuff you're generally not going to hear about on NPR, as in many of the stories in this book. No, unless you give a billion-dollar grant for a show that features, you know, curse words and erotica. Yeah. Let, 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 you, you could do it. I mean, if you just give them a billion dollars, they'll, they'll do it. They'll put it on digital, too, and uh, uh, bypass the FCC. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, uh, the one thing that struck me about that story was that there's a scene where they're eating fried clams on a stick. Yeah. And it's, it strikes me. In Ben and Amboy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's so interesting how uh, vivid writing about food and smells is. I mean, you know, I, I read that piece and I thought, damn, where can I get fried clams on a stick now? <laughs> And I, that's, I think... Won't a, taste the way it tasted then, though. No. But I think that that's a great... Uh, I don't think there's any, any clam alive that could be as pure as those clams were back in that time. So in a way, they're stories about paradise, mm. origin stories. Huh? What Keats says in Ode to Psyche, that time was best, which was the first. So in, in a way, if I, could, if I know anything about my writing, it's I write toward the past rather than the future, but... It, it, as a you know, we're both science fiction fans. I mean, is it possible to write about the future? I think we're always writing about either the present or the past. Well, I, I thought of that story as having a bit of the uh, science fiction and just being like a thought experiment. And mm -hmm. the way you describe the origin, the, the origin of the story, that's exactly what it is. Is mm -hmm. you just say, okay, I have this one line, bang, I'm going to just build it up, and mm -hmm. build the world around that one line. And I think that's it. I mean, I think that mm. the genre of science fiction, that the way we understand it is a good way, pathway into understanding a, how a lot of writing gets done. Mm -hmm. And it gives us, a, a, because of the genre aspects of it, gives us a stronger vision of how things yeah. are, yeah. how it's, the structure it's, 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 it's the opposite of that, I, I hate to use the M word, but that dreaded genre memoir. It's the opposite of memoir. Um, I mean, I wrote a memoir before memoir was cool, so I could be speaking just out of spite. But um, I, I wrote a memoir called Fall Out of Heaven, which is currently only available on, I've got to use the A word now, with, on Amazon. But, um, uh, but you're the, working the, to the memoir, correct the, that, aren't you? The memoir writer, I, w I was at a dinner once, some years ago, uh, in Washington, we had, we go to dinners in Washington. Mm -hmm. I try to avoid them, but sometimes you have to go. And um, 
there was a young woman sitting next to me. It turned out she was a writing student of a, of a writer friend of mine. So we were talking about him and his work, and I said, well, what are you working on? And with a, without any irony whatsoever, she said, my first memoir? And she completely misunderstood the look on my face, which reflected my thought that people don't write novels anymore, they write memoirs. And this was her first memoir instead of her first novel. And she said, I can see by the way you're looking at me, you are shocked that someone as young as I am could be writing a memoir about my life. She said, but I'll have you know, I have suffered terribly. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's the origin of the memoir. Right? If you ain't suffered, you ain't going to write a good memoir. Uh, so, I mean, how much would you pay to have, a, a, you know, the memoir of, uh, I don't know, some saint without the suffering part? I mean, it would be wonderful to read about a good, a pure life. Um, but you're not going to read that because nobody's suffered personally. Nobody's going to buy it. Well, as Stan Salem says... Even if you have a dog, a lame dog, you can turn that into the basis of a memoir. Right? Well, as Stan Salem says, we need to start paying people to not write. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> as, that... As Amazon book place and Lulu are perfect examples of this. There's a, wick, there's a wicked literary critic whose name has passed out of my memory, which is just as well, since he's a literary critic, um, talked about paying, uh, paying certain writers not to write. And he, he hated Joyce Oates' work, and so he, talk, he centered on her as his, the writer he would pay to stop writing. Um, which is funny, but it's ridiculous. I mean, she's one of our great writers. And, but anyway, um, if you think about it, there are some writers you might consider paying not to write, but then, you know, why waste our time talking about negative things like that? Right? Yeah, no, there's, what's amazing is that we live in a world where we're saturated with great books, like Alan's. And, and I mean, to just to, there's another story in there, uh, uh, grib, uh, gribness? Gribness, yes. Uh, gribness. Do you know what gribness are? None of you had my grandmother. Gribness. Fried onions, is it? F onions fried in chicken fat. I mean, you know, just saying that, I might be arrested by the organic farmers of the county here, right? Onions fried in chicken fat, which was this incredible delicacy that my great-grandmother made when I was a child. And so the main character in this story is a, well, you want, you want to talk about him? He's kind of a lost soul. He, he, he's a fascinating character. I mean, he's something of a loser uh, in the family. He's the younger of two brothers and a, a child, two children of first-generation uh, Jews. and, and He's, I love that your character describes himself as a middle-aged screw-up, which I think is, you know, could describe most of America. <laughs> and, but I, the, the... Well, you could, if you're too young, though, you could grow into that. 
<laughs> yeah, so, so you can all aspire to grow into middle-aged screw-ups. I, I, having already arrived, I can say it's a hell of a destination. Uh, uh, but one of the things, this story was just so powerful and intense because uh, there, he's uh, been married, his wife, and, and divorced, and his daughter lives with his ex-wife, and she's retarded, and this kind of just comes out very slowly. It doesn't come out. It takes a while a read mm -hmm. for the reader to sink in. And this is a it's a very intense story, Al. Yeah, well, he can't he he's he can't afford the plane ticket to go to visit his retarded daughter. So his brother is a very successful businessman. He's paid paid his way, and so he hates himself for that. And he hates himself that he that he uh, produced this child. And he hates himself because he loves this child. And he hates himself because he's visiting this child. I mean, it's just, it's kind of an apotheosis of, of neg negativity somehow turning into a into a tiny spark of love and devotion. It, it's, a, it's a really beautiful story that's kind of of love wrapped in a, a tempest that's of self-loathing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I could say that's what I tried for. I don't know what I tried for when I wrote it, but when I look back on it, I mean, my 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 rabbi, who was Bernard Malamud, would would say, um, "Well, I wrote the story, and then now I'm just one of a number of readers. So, what do you think?" Um, which which I think is a really terrific way to to look at one's work. Uh, well, again, I just like producing a child. I mean, you you love your child, but you don't really know who that child is until you get some other views. You know? Well, I just think of you as just this, uh, you know, kind of a multifaceted uh, uh, actor who's just cranking out all these roles for himself and mm. writing them out and inhabiting them. Well, I, I and actually, that must be not not fun. <laughs> well, I don't, it's a it's a neutral kind of pain. I mean, I mean, I'm, I mean, it's the only part of the day that's aside from being with your, the kids or your spouse that's worth living. Um, you think I loved getting a pedicure? No. You think I loved walking along West Cliff today? Christ, no, it's too much work, but I do it. But, you know, if, but I loved doing FaceTime with my, one of my grandchildren today. I mean, that's, that's, so that and work was the best part of the day. But in any case, you turn it out into the world and, and then you see what other people make of it. Um, but coming back to this histrionic aspect that you mentioned, I mean, I, I, as much as you can teach writing, I teach it that way. I teach it, uh, I employ a method that my old teacher, a man named Francis Ferguson, who wrote probably the best book an American ever wrote on, on uh, drama, it's called The Idea of a Theater, which was made up of mostly articles based on reviews he did for the old New York Herald Tribune. Um, and he goes back to Aristotle's poetics and shows writers, whether playwrights or fiction writers, the, the essential biological counterpart to a living rhythm that you find in, in, in prose. That it, there's, I mean, the old thing is beginning, middle, and end, right? We all know that. But he, he develops 
Aristotle developed it into a beautiful critique of the Oedipus plays, you know, from if you've read the poetics, but it's, a, it's, a, it's instruction, instructional about how to make a living, an imitation of life by means of words on the page, by constructing a narrative rhythm that gives the reader a, a sense of a fully developed dramatic action uh, from beginning to end. So, and it's, it's purely histrionic. In, in the reading experience, the, the prose is transformed in the good prose, the great prose that sticks with us, is transformed almost into the equivalent of a memory. When mm. you go back and visit the reading experience mm. of a great story, it's just like, it's like remembering that those things that happened to you. you your ability right. to access well, them. Well, it's better it. than that. Who can remember one's life? But you remember the great stories you've read. Right? Yeah. Um, and then, and then, then you, if you've read enough, then you get confused, right? You think... Did I, did I really attack a king? And <laughs> did I say that in Congress? Uh, that's why. Uh, did I have dinner with you know, this great artist? And you realize those are those memories are memories of reading you've done rather than life you've lived, which is wonderful. It suggests that great art can achieve time and time again the the high pitch of life, which in real existence comes very seldom. I mean, which is why we read. And that's why the oft underestimated science fiction writer Philip K. Dick wrote a story called We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, right. which is made into two terrible movies. Yeah. Someday they'll make a good movie of his stuff. But. Yeah, it's a great, that's a great story. I just reread it because Dick's... This. Philip K. Dick, uh, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. This it's, is for people who... Uh, are leading very dull lives in the future. And, th and they can buy memories. So they can think, oh yes, I was that great adventurer on Mars. And then um, it turns out the guy in the story was a great adventurer on Mars. And they have to, uh, it basically shuts down the industry because he's causes so much disruption. Um, you folks have any questions? For five minutes, I will tell you everything without any lying. Whatsoever, <laughs> everything I know. Yes, yeah. um, Chris. You, you said you enjoy uh, science fiction. Mm -hmm. and, uh, do you ever find any science fiction writers that are humorous in the same vein that your story was? Where I mean, do you find a person or woman who needs gay haters? Because I find that you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I don't go to Ursula Le Guin for humor because, I mean, she is, she is a wonderful writer, extraordinary writer, but she's not very funny. Um, <laughs> uh, I would say Vonnegut, who is extremely funny and serious at the same time. And I, I think of that whole generation, he's one of the most underestimated writers of his generation. Um, and let me point out Stanislaw Lem. His, he has some amazingly hilarious work. I'd highly recommend, he wrote a, 
book called A Perfect Vacuum, which is perfect reviews of non-existent books. And they are hysterical. They, it's some of the best writing I've ever read. Stanislaw Lem, L-E-M. Polish. Polish writer, yeah. He wrote a book, he was the author of Solaris, was one of his books that has some humor. There's, there's a, a fair amount of humor in the novel Solaris. None of it, of course, made it to the movie screen in either of the versions. Yeah, that's true. They're two very... Uh... Yeah, the Tarkovsky version is good. The Soderbergh one is unwatchable. Wait a minute, don't say anything bad about Soderbergh because my daughter-in-law is now directed by him. We, we have an actress in the family, and she's in uh, Soderbergh's, this is a commercial. Soderbergh, you know, he's, he, he's sworn off making Hollywood movies, and he's working on a TV series, it's called The Nick, it's about a turn of the century Manhattan uh, hospital called the Knickerbocker Hospital, and our daughter-in-law plays the nun who runs the hospital, opposite Clive Owen, who's head of surgery, and the few clips I've seen, it's very bloody, it's all about the the turn from ancient to modern medicine. Um, and Soderbergh has directed the first 10 episodes of the first series, and they just got renewed for a second year, and he, he's going to direct every one of the episodes. Unlike, um, if you know, you know, if you watch some of these series, whether it's uh, uh, The Sopranos or you know, any one of a number of dozen other series that you may ad admire, they're directed by usually directed by various hands, but Soderbergh has, direct, has directed the first 20 episodes himself. Really? So don't talk like that about Soderbergh. <laughs> well, he's given our given our given our work. Well, that's good as long as he stays away from Lamb. Uh, I guess a, on on the other hand, uh, as a guy who reads a fair amount of science fiction, you might look at Cory Doctorow has a book called Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. That's that's pretty fun. And well, then actually, Stanley Elkins, The Magic Kingdom, is a is a funny novel about uh, kids with deadly diseases on a trip to to uh, Disneyland. Yeah, it, it's a riot. Um, any other questions? No more questions? Alan, let's give a shout out to some books that are worth reading. Okay. Just real quick. We've got a couple minutes. We might as well uh, these people. First and foremost, please go and buy all the copies of Alan's book <laughs> and get them signed by the author because it's just wonderful stuff. And you, you, what it, you'll find, and one of the things I want to talk about, the, the thing is about a short story collection is that it can lead, give you a lot of visions of an author an entree into his novels. For example, if you like that Ansel Adams story in the book, and I'm sure you will, run, don't walk, and buy to, to catch the, the lightning, which is a, another book that's in the same vein. Um, that's the Edward Curtis novel. Yeah. Uh, Days Given Over to Travel uh, is this really powerful memoir of his mother, and, and I'd say that there's a little... Well, it's my mother's death told in her voice. Um, which actually, when you again, you're talking about histrionics. Uh, I, I mean, I s we had a little festival at George Mason where I teach a drama festival, and, a, and a, an actress did that as a monologue, and I thought it was just. I didn't think I could cry anymore from 
based on that material. I thought I was finished with it when I finished crying when I wrote the story about and she really brought me to tears. Um, it sounds stupid, not a memoir about a, a, a fictional memoir about your mother's death as narrated by herself. But it, I hope it works. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted. Um, well, Alan, uh, you just introduced me to two good books uh, today, Charles Cumming and uh, uh, Camila Sham. Camila Shamsi, yeah. Kamala Shamsi? Pakistani writer, lives in London. Yeah, it's a new book, it's coming out. Uh, next month it's called a, a God in Every Stone. It's a really beautiful book about a, a young English woman archeologist who uh, goes to the Peshawar Valley on a dig to try to find this uh, fabled silver circlet, bracelet that uh, belonged to a, an ancient Persian king that uh, it was found by Alexander the Great, and he carried around, carried it around with him, and supposedly lost it in the Peshawar Valley. Um, but it, it, it uh, be begins at the uh, at the edge of World War One and goes through the the, the anti uh, independence riots in the in the nineteenth mid nineteen thirties in uh, in Peshawar when the the first real massacre, the British mowed down a crowd of hundreds of, uh, of uh, Indians, Muslims and Hindus alike, who were there to uh, pass, pass, passively protest uh, their colonial rule. Um, so a, a God in Every Stone, I love that book. Uh, what was it? Oh, I gave you the new Charles oh, Cumming right. uh, spy novel called A Colder War. Uh, Cumming is, I guess he's in his mid-40s, mid and uh, this, is, this shows you writing is always a last resort. He, tried, he applied to the British Secret Service, but, but uh, was flunked out, <laughs> fortunately, because he then went on to write, uh, I guess this is his sixth or seventh spy novel, really fabulous. If you like Le Carre, you're gonna love this guy. He's sort of, I, I think, won the crown of Le Carre in a, in, in a younger generation. Um, well, it's nice to see um, that the espionage novel is always with us, and it's always looking at what we don't want to show. I mean, there's always we're yeah. always hiding something from ourselves. Yeah, well, in politics and in war, I guess. I mean, it, you really, as a lover of spy novels, you really have to ask yourself: Is peace going to be worth it <laughs> if if it does away with the spy novel and the war novel? Well, we all thought that the uh, end of espionage was the fall of the Berlin Wall, and yeah. just you know. I, yes, I remember. That's the point. I remember when Robert Stone was writing this novel, uh, set in in Jerusalem, and uh, and then there was a, a period. I don't know if you remember it, when maybe fifteen years ago, and suddenly it seemed that peace was going to be possible in the Middle East, and I thought. That's wonderful. And then I thought, poor Bob Stone. He's, he's screwed. This novel's going to, no one's going to want to buy this novel because it's all about the contention between. And then, fortunately for Bob and unfortunately for the rest of the world, you know, the bad stuff started up again in the Middle East. And let me say that they have over here on their bargain shelves uh, a book called Visitation Street by Ivy Pakoda. This is amazing evocation 
of a neighborhood in Brooklyn. Uh, it's haunting and haunted in the most subtle and beautiful ways. Amazing characters. Really, just once you read that book, you can inhabit that world and live there. It's really beautifully written. I think it's amazing. And, and while we're doing commercials, yeah. <laughs> there's poems by Robert Sward in this bookstore, right? And a novel, a, 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 a group of linked stories called Stop That Girl by Elizabeth Mackenzie, which you all should read. Support your hometown writers. It's a wonderful book, filled with delightful but serious comedy. And to all of you out there in Radioland, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thank you for we'll coming. We'll be back next year with Alan. Yeah, I've got a new novel coming. Well, it's an old new novel. It's coming out in March. It's uh, in 1986. I wrote a novel called The Grandmother's Club, and uh, somebody's bringing out a new edition of it, slightly revised, under a different name. It's going to be called Prayers for the Living. And this is the the father's version of the short story in this book, in a sense. Well, not exactly, but it's a story about a a rabbi from New Jersey who marries into a family of, of businessmen and, and leaves, the, leaves the pulpit and becomes the head of a, of a corporation sort of based on United Fruit and becomes a, a, a multinational corporate head, uh, destroying himself and his family in the process. Make a great musical, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and it's called Prayers for the Living, and it's coming in, uh, in March. Thanks for joining us, Alan, and thanks for all of you coming to this our little get-together. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.